Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, author Ben Merlis joins Nate to talk about his book, Going Off, the story of the Juice Crew and Cold Chillin' Records. Ben tells Nate the story of one of the top hip-hop crews of the Golden Age and the record label that assembled and promoted them. They discuss the innovative producer Marley Marl, the great MC Big Daddy Kane, the wild card genius Biz Marquis, MC Shan's feud with KRS-One, and more. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we're joined by Ben Morales, author of Going Off, the story of the Juice Crew and Cold Chillin' Records. Ben, welcome to the show. Hey, Nate. Thanks for having me. Sure. It's a treat. I really enjoyed this book, and it's one of those books that I think, at least in my case, fulfilled its mission, which and forgive me for putting words in your mouth, but is to, you know, give a shout out to uh, Marley Marl and the Juice Crew and Cold Chillin' Records, which it absolutely did for me in a way I kind of found embarrassing as somebody who sort of considered themselves an old head from the age of the golden age of hip hop. I didn't know half this stuff. So thanks so much for writing this book. Yeah. Well, I didn't know a lot of it either until I you know, started digging in and doing a lot of research. I mean, I knew the basic story, but but the details came with doing lots of interviews. And so for quickly, just give us a quick summary of the significance of the Juice Crew. Uh, the Juice Crew was a collective of rappers, DJs, and um, a producer and also a um, radio personality, Mr. Magic, um, that kind of came out of the 1980s New York hip hop scene and um, coalesced on Cold Chillin' Records. Cold Chillin' was this label that formed uh, that at least the first couple of years exclusively put out um, artists in this collective. And within the collective, you have lots of innovators. You have Marley Marl, who's a producer who innovated a lot of production techniques um, that you still hear in hip hop music today. And you also have um, 
lyricism coming from Big Daddy Kane and Cool G Rap in particular that it sort of those guys kind of changed the way people rap. Um, they made the rhyme patterns much more complex. And uh, you have Roxanne Shante who dissed another rap group on a record, which is, you know, very common in today's hip hop landscape. And I, to my knowledge, still, she's the first person to ever do that. So there are a lot of firsts. And also Mr. Magic, the Juice Crew means, at least originally was, um, Mr. Magic was Sir Juice was his nickname. And he was this guy, John Rivas, who had a radio show on um, WHBI and then later WBLS. And he he was the first person to have a hip hop radio show on commercial radio ever. And so that's a first too. <laughs> and that made him quite a player in the New York hip hop scene. And I was going into this interview, I was playing in my head with this whole notion of Mr. Magic as a DJ and, but not a DJ as in scratched records. But when you said radio personality, that summed it up perfectly. That's, that's what Mr. Magic was. And a lot of people, I think, you know, like if you watch uh, Netflix's Hip Hop Evolution, they talk about Marley Marl as as an innovative DJ and producer, and I think they give him his due. They've got DJ Premier saying, you know, the entire golden age of hip hop is architected off of his strategies as a producer, which is pretty damn huge. I mean, to me, that's like Louis Armstrong level praise um, of of a producer. But and they talk about Big Daddy Kane and they compare him with Rakeem and and you know definitely put him in the right place as one of the founders of hip hop lyricism. But there's also I think a tendency to look back at the Juice Crew as kind of the losers of the diss exchange with Boogie Down Productions over the bridge. And I think it's important to recognize that because of Mr. Magic that they were the kings at the time when KRS-One and Scott LaRock sought to take them down. It wasn't not a case of BDP shooting down. They were going for the top because Mr. Magic owned the airwaves. Right, that's absolutely correct. And and really what, what Boogie Down Productions was doing was using a strategy that they learned from Roxanne Shante having dissed UTFO two years earlier and, and made a career for herself doing that. And um, it worked in uh, BDP's favor. They ended up making a career for themselves uh, based on, you know, the controversy surrounding their diss records against the Juice Crew, mainly MC Shan, but yeah, the rest of the Juice Crew too. And that's the thing about Cold Chillin' as as big as they were in New York City with, you know, Roxanne's singles and MC Shan's early singles in that key period, right at the same time as the emergence of Run DMC, I would say. They they were huge in New York City, but then in the 90s when hip-hop becomes this multi-platinum business, um, despite the success of Big Daddy Kane in becoming – not quite a household name, but definitely one of the top tier stars of hip hop in that era. And Viz Markie's commercial success, at least with a one-off hit, they never really produced the platinum albums and, and got the payout that other labels like Def Jam um, or Ruthless did. 
Yeah, that's right. Because the landscape was changing going into the 90s. In the 80s, hip hop was at least commercially successful hip hop was 90% based in New York. So it was, they were big fish in a small pond. And then as that pond got bigger and bigger, they had, were competing with, you know, Ruthless Records on the West Coast. And, uh, you know, there's Sir Mix-a-Lot in Seattle, at, uh, the uh, Two Live Crew in Miami, uh, Ghetto Boys in, in Houston. So it becomes this national thing and actually international too at that point a little bit in Europe. But um, so it became, you know, you got to figure your average consumer record consumer only has so much money to spend that there, there's, there are a lot more choices going into the nineties. And um, you know, they, they had their moment and it, and, and, and that moment faded. And it's not to say that uh, the records weren't good. They were, but, there's just so much else going on in the hip hop world at that point. And so, yeah, they, they, uh, and even at that point in, we're talking very early nineties, Def Jam was very close to going out of business as well. And they were saved by, a, you know, uh, Lear Cohen likes to talk about how red man, his first album saved the label. It's like you have a hit record that comes at the right time that, that really can, can you know bring a, a label out of the doldrums? I mean, most record labels really thrive on a few key artists. It's like the the hits pay for the pay for the duds, you know. So if you don't have those, if you don't have those hits coming, it's really hard to keep a label going. And let's talk about the principles of Cold Chillin' Records because, and I think it's not untypical of hip hop independent labels in the 80s, but it was an alliance uh, between an African American and a Jewish entrepreneur, which you see a lot in the 80s and beyond. But prior to that, it would have traditionally been a Jewish entrepreneur owning the label and not having an African American partner. And so, um, you know, let's talk a little bit about Lynn Fichtelberg and um, Flytie, Tyrone Flytie Williams and their alliance and how they came together. Yeah. So um, like Def Jam, um, Cold Chillin was co-owned by a Jewish guy and a black guy. And, um, you know, in the case of Def Jam, it was uh, Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons. And in, in the case of Cold Chillin, it was um, Lynn Fichtelberg and, and Tyrone Williams. So Tyrone Williams was the producer for the Rap Attack radio show. And then as Rap Attack got more popular and kind of became, they became gatekeepers of, you know, getting records, making records hits, at least in New York. Um, they started, he, he got himself into artist management. So you got all these people joining the juice crew, basically being friends with, uh, Mr. Magic, and then um, Fly Tie starts managing them. Uh, Roxanne Chante, MC Sham, Bismarcky, Cool G Rap, uh, Big Daddy Kane at, at the beginning. Um, and then there was this label called Prism Records out of Manhattan that was owned by Len Fitchelberg. And Prism, Prism goes back to the late 70s. They were a disco label. And then they, as disco kind of faded out in the early 80s, 
and and evolved into dance music or uh, I think they called the high energy is a uh, kind of this one of the real specific subsets of, of the dance music that they were putting out. So they're putting out mostly 12 inch singles by dance kind of faceless um, artists. And then um, that kind of dies down by the mid eighties and they form this alliance starting really with uh, Biz Marquis putting out uh, his first single, Make the Music With Your Mouth um, on Prism Records in 86. And then they decide, you know, if Tyrone keeps providing them these Juice Crew rappers for Prism to release, why not have a sub-label kind of differentiating the, the, the hip hop from the dance music um, and then call that Cold Chillin'. And so that by the end of 86, you have the first records coming out that with the Cold Chillin' imprint on them. And then eventually Prism becomes a, the sub-label of Cold Chillin'. It becomes like, you know, the, the hip hop overtakes the everything else that, that they had been doing up to that point. So, so and then eventually Tyrone becomes co-owner with Len Fitchelberg of this label. And they have basically an in-house producer in Marley Marl, who's also part of the Rap Attack show. But he never has an official executive role or an ownership piece of the company. That's correct. So, yeah, um, starting in 82 or 83, uh, Marley Marl becomes the, the DJ for the Rap Attack show. So you have Mr. Magic talking, but you have Marley Marl physically pl- playing the records and, and mixing the records and scratching and um, so by the time they started doing Cold Chillin', Marley Marl was already established as a producer as well. And he, at least the initial plan was anything on Cold Chillin' is produced by Marley Marl. And so the first two or three years of the label, um, Marley Marl gets production credit on everything. And, and um that's a controversial topic because a lot of the rappers that he produced picked the samples and, and kind of crafted the way they wanted their records to sound. So a lot of them felt that they were in fact the producers of their records and Marley was more of an engineer, but it, it all goes back to the question of what is considered a producer. And there's really no way to answer that because it's a case by case basis. People have different opinions on what the role of a producer is. This predates even hip hop, you know, like what, like what do people actually do that makes them producers? Absolutely. And let's hear uh, a snippet of Roxanne's revenge. And then we can talk about that a little bit more. Three guys, and you know that's true. Uh, let me tell you and explain them all to you. I met this dude with the name of a hat. I didn't even walk away. I didn't give him no rap, but then he got real mad and he got a little tired. If he worked for me, you know he would be fired. His name is Kango, and that is cute. He ain't got money and he ain't got the loot. And every time that I see him, he's always a begging. And all the other girls that he's always trying to lay it. Every time that he's that was Roxanne's Revenge by Roxanne Chante, an answer to uh, UTFO's. Uh, hit record, hit B-side. And it's it ties in so much with what we've talked about in this show. It's an answer record, just like Rufus Thomas's Bearcat was an answer record to Hound Dog. And so the patterns that we've seen in American music in the 50s, 40s, 50s, and 60s repeat again in the 80s and 90s and the, in the hip-hop era. And Roxanne Shante's 
this is not as I think it, somebody in the book says that when BDP went after MC Sean, it was more serious than this. That this was kind of playful. Yeah, I'd agree with that. It was an answer record. You know, she's there, she's answering uh, the UTFO hit Roxanne Roxanne about a fictitious uh, girl who won't give the 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 members of UTFO the time of day, and so so Sean Lolita Shante Gooden, that's her you know, government name, she um, uh, decided to rap in the character of Roxanne, this fictitious person, and in doing so actually becomes Roxanne Chante. It, it, it cra- basically, her, that this record crafts her identity uh, up to current day. She's still Roxanne Chante to this day. So, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's more playful. It's, it's basically her making fun of these guys and um, and the a couple years later, Boogie Down Productions dissing MC Shan. Yeah, it gets more personal, definitely. And then you get to the point where you know in in hip hop where people are threatening to like kill each other. Like it, it gets really ugly. And do uh, later on. <laughs> yeah, and it, it leads in a bad way, but it's it it starts here, but not in the same way. And 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 like I said, it's something that goes back. As long as we've had American records, we've had answer records and rivalries and dissing uh, as, as part of that. And, and Roxanne is an interesting character because she was very, very young when she recorded that. Yeah, she's almost uh, – she was uh, 14, just about to turn 15, I think, somewhere around there. And so then like Aretha Franklin, who who had multiple children in her teens, she takes some time off to have some kids and – kind of fades from the scene a little bit. And by the time she does her own full length album, she's kind of out of step with the trends. Right. Um, would you think she was out of step? I, I, I think I wouldn't say that. I, I, I'd say that there's um, the problem is she put out maybe seven or eight singles over the course of five years before putting out a full length. Whereas the normal thing to do would be, to put out two or three singles and then follow up with a full length the next year. Um, so it, it's more just kind of like the release schedule kind of got um, interrupted by uh, her personal life, having children and all that uh, more than the music itself kind of being dated. I don't think her music was da- sounded dated. Her music for was dated, but what I was trying to get at was when she tries to sort of diss some of the ladies that have come onto the scene s- since she had been out, it wasn't as well received. And, and that, you know, certainly like Queen Latifah and others, it just, something didn't click right. And she didn't make it into that new era uh, with, I don't know, I feel like she's somebody who never got her propers as an innovator. And yeah, I'm just trying to figure yeah. out why. Yeah, I, um, I think there was a lot of pushback from from all the dissing. I mean, some of the people she dissed was a, it was an answer to records they had made. Like JJ Fad, I think dissed her first, and then she started dissing them. So, but some of the people I think may have been it may have been kind of you know she she threw the first punch so to speak. But a lot of those records uh, later on were actually written by other recording artists who were on Cold Chillin'. 
so at Granddaddy IU wrote Big Mama, which is the one Darishi disses almost every big female rapper at the time. Um, and uh, there's uh, Big Daddy Kane wrote Have a Nice Day, which disses BDP in it. So you have like her style change because it went from being off the top of the head rapping, um, you know, her own words to, you know, pre-written lyrics from someone else. Uh, but she was able to handle the, you know, complex cadences of Cool G Rap and Big Daddy Kane as if they were rapping the lyrics themselves. I mean, she she's an enormous talent. Yeah, so... Yeah, and, I, and she was young, and and I, you know, she was so young when she first started, and and it's one of those things where we think of the period, the pre golden age of hip hop as as a whole nother era, and forget, you know, if you're 14 in '84, you're still going to be young enough to adapt in '88, '89, '90, and that record doesn't quite have the full on Marley Moral production, and he's going to add some things. He's he's following the trend of the time, which was rapping over drum machines, which was pioneered by Run DMC with Sucka MCs. But he adds so much when he figures out that you can actually, instead of using the pre-programmed sounds on the drum machine, you can sample drum drum machine sound or drum sounds off of your favorite classic records and use your 808 to trigger those sounds. And sort of without meaning to, sets hip hop off in a whole new direction. Yeah, he's one of the first to do that. Um, I know the there's a record, actually Roxanne Roxanne does that too. And that's, I want to say Full Force produced that. So I, who came first, I don't know. Uh, uh, I, I think, you know, sometimes things are discovered by different people simultaneously. Uh, but what happens is Marley Marl, yeah, he can capture individual snare, bass drum, and hi-hat hits from his favorite records and then piece them together to create new beats. And uh, his favorite one to use was Impeach the President by the Honey Drippers. And he used it a lot. And actually, he talked about how he regrets not having used it even more, you know, just have that be his like sign signature drum kit sound. They call it their like hip hop producers refer to it as a kit. Like what kit are you using? In other words, what, where are you grabbing this snare, this hi-hat, this uh, kick drum from what records? So he, he's, yeah. And I was uh, pretty fascinated to learn that he, he started out with the digital delay pedal, which, you know, something we associate with guitarists of that period, like the edge of U2. Yeah. He was using uh, delay, uh, a delay pedal for guitar and then a rack mount delay effect for, I guess would have been used mostly for guitar as well, because if you can, uh, basically a del in a sense, a delay pedal is a sampler because it's sampling something you just played and, and playing it back, you know, a second later, or it's capturing, you know, one or two seconds of whatever you're playing through it. So yeah, he had a mind for that kind of thing. You know, he was an innovator. He he would take apart the console at the radio station and try to get a more powerful signal for the, for the, the radio station. You know, he was that and, kind of a guy. Yeah. And, and, and I hadn't really put it together. And in the book, you don't even go into some of his most known uh, production feats, which 
One of them is kind of controversial. There's claims that he produced Eric B. and Rakim's first album, but it was recorded by him in his house, in his home studio, which is still massive props, whether he was the producer or Eric B. was. And then he goes on after he leaves Cold Chillin' to produce LL Cool J's Mama Said Knock You Out, which is uh, LL Cool J's comeback, but also the most successful album of, of LL's career up to that point, and one of the classic uh, hip-hop albums of the golden age and what was it that caused him to leave the cold chillin fold uh he leaves cold chillin towards the end of the 80s because he realizes that um he can make more money or he is making more money per, per record by producing for other labels like uptown he was doing a lot of production work for heavy d and the boys uh towards the end of the 80s and he just did the math in his head and he and, and he figured the way i'm being paid uh, by cold chillin i'm a staff producer so i'm not being paid per project i'm actually being paid a salary and you know if i can squeeze off you know four albums a year for a different label or for other labels or any anybody if i'm a, an, a free agent I, I can actually make more money than just being a, a staff producer for one label. That's all it was. Yeah, and and to me that's one of two decisions that seemed like strength of the label, like having an excellent in-house producer turns into a liability when the producer realizes he can get points as an independent producer and he's not there's no upside for him with Cold Chillin. And the second one is Fly Ties habit of signing everybody up to a management deal, which, you know, that goes back to Motown. That's There's a, plenty of record labels that have done that, but that also creates a tension with artists because there's definitely an element of you need your manager to be on your side when you negotiate with the record label and having somebody that's in both roles is, is double dipping. And that creates tension with uh, their biggest star and prime lyricist, Big Daddy Kane. Right. That's, it's a really common industry practice for the management and the label to be the same entity. And the, the term for that is conflict of interest, because just like you described, yeah, the part of having a manager is to being able to negotiate with uh, a label, whatever label you're on. So that obviously would disappear if you, your management, your label were the same entity. And so, yeah, Big Daddy Kane ends up uh, being produced by Rush, which is uh, Russell Simmons' uh, management company that Lior Cohen was, I think, totally running by the end of the eighties. Um, so between his first, between Big Daddy Kane's first album and second album, so by '89, um, Kane is on Rush, and a lot of the other Cold Chillin' acts are still managed managed by uh, Fly Tie. And, and let's hear a little bit of Big Daddy Kane. I want to hear Raw by Big Daddy Kane, produced by Marlon Mall. Fuck around with Kane and come out black and blue for this. So, yo, go for what you know. I tip to the base so I can humiliate. We can go rhyme for rhyme, word for word, verse for verse. Get you a nurse too late. Get you a hearse to take you to your burial ground. Because the Big Daddy Kane always throws down. Correct, I get respect. I'm out to collect cash money because I get bored. <laughs> And that's Rob, a Big Daddy Kane, produced by Marley Marl. And that's a definitive one where there's controversy about who's the producer, because Kane's the one who picked out the records that they would be sampling. And 
by Marley Marl's own admission, Kane pushed him into to achieving new levels as a producer and wouldn't let him just do his stock tricks. But that's also absolutely one of the sonic hallmarks of that era. And that's something I learned from the book. My benighted ass out in the Texas panhandle had no idea. I heard Rob by Big Daddy Kane. I didn't realize it predated the public enemy records that used the same saxophone parts and gave that dissonant edge. And to me, that's a huge accomplishment to be the people that brought that dissonant late 80s sound into hip hop. Actually, I don't think it does predate um, Rebel Without a Pause. I think it was kind of inspired by Rebel Without a Pause by Public Enemy. Um, but it does predate a lot of later Public Enemy records. Uh, but then again, Public Enemy, whose production team, The Bomb Squad, did all their early records, were absolutely produced, I mean, um, in- influenced by Marley Marl's earlier production, like for MC Shan. And, and, and I met Chuck D and he even admitted to it. He said, he said, you know, Marley Marl was a huge influence on us. So it was almost like one influenced the other. And then they in turn, in return influenced the, you know, Juice Crew back, you know, Kane and Marley. So, but it's true. Yeah. That, that, that was a big, Marley sees raw as a turning point. He sees that as, as there was, there's hip hop before that record. And then there's hip hop after that record. And, and, it's faster than most stuff that came before it. And I can't, and you know, by the night, by the early nineties or mid nineties, hip hop slows down and it gets weeded out. You know, the influence of, of, of marijuana is very prominent in the music. So, <laughs> so, you, so you have this sliver of time from maybe 87 to 89, 90, where, where there's a lot of fast hip hop. And I think that really, struck a chord with me when it was coming out because at the same time I was also discovering punk music. I know the two are only tenuously related, but, um, I think that experience was pretty common for a lot of Gen Xers, especially white Gen Xers that were hearing about, and actually black Gen Xers as well. I mean, you know, you hear the little John and others that, that credit bad brains and other punk bands with being their source of their sound. So the stuff was just in the air. Then I, I remember seeing the but the whole surfers in the late '80s, and and they were playing uh, raw and NWA's uh, first singles before the album, but the you know Boys in the Hood and and Dope Man, and they were playing through their sound system uh, before a show, and that was really not as it fit right in. It was what people were familiar with it and, 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 and were into it. It was, it was exciting and novel, but I don't think, I don't think your experience was unique in that aspect. I think a lot of people were getting into punk and getting into, uh, the new, the new golden age of hip hop that was a in right at that same time. And, you know, for people of a certain age, that's, uh, the golden age. <laughs> yeah. I think that the people older than me, people maybe eight or 10 years older than me, I was born in the late seventies. So, a lot of people, first generation hardcore punk people who were going to shows in, in the early 80s and seeing those bands got burned out on it by the mid 80s and hip hop just got so good. They, they kind of figured, you know, I'm going to get off the ship and, 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 and attach myself to this one. Uh, th- I mean, the most the prime example being the Beastie Boys. Yeah. Um, but there but a lot of people uh, from that you know, born in the maybe early to mid sixties, um, made that transition from, from punk 
to uh, to hip hop around the time that the Juice Crew is taking off. And that brings me back to something that I meant to cover earlier and didn't, which is that the Juice Crew, you point out in the book, is some of the first hip hop performers and creators who grew up on hip hop, that they came up in a city that was already having Cool Herc style park parties with a DJ and a sound system and B-Boys break-in and the whole thing. What was the impact of that? How do you think that manifested itself in the work of Cold Chillin'? Yeah, you have. So it's really, we're talking about the second generation of hip hop artists. The first being the ones who invented it in the seventies and then made records going into maybe the early to mid eighties, you know, uh, groups that have um, numbers in their names, you know, the Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, the Fearless Four, the Treacherous Three. Um, and then the next generation would be uh, the people like the Juice Crew who were, I guess groups were already starting to disappear at that point. It was, there were more solo rappers. And um, yeah, you have these people who were born in the late 60s and early 70s who really discover hip hop when they're really small children or in the case of Craig G, the youngest member of the Juice Crew, he was born in 73. That's the year Cool Herc started doing those parties. So like literally there's no way he could have remembered a world before there was hip hop. So um, yeah, it was just part of the landscape of New York at the time. And, and so, you know, being born into it, I mean, think about being, think about have how you have, NBA players whose parents were NBA players. Like, think about the advantage those people have. They're just like, they live and breathe this thing. And, and so I think a lot of the, the second generation people, um, they were living and breathing it. Like Big Daddy Kane told me he first heard of, he first witnessed hip hop in 1975, people DJing and rapping in, in the parks in, in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn, where he's from. And, and he was seven years old when that happened. I mean, in 1975. So yeah, it just leaves an impression on people and, and um, they grow up around it and they, and they, and they push it to the next level. And one other prime character that we haven't talked about is Biz Marquis, who, whose alliance with TJ Swan introduces, I wouldn't say it introduces melodicism to hip hop, but introduces a sort of, off kilter melodicism to hip hop that's totally unique and yet becomes a key part of the fabric of hip hop going forward. How did that alliance happen? Uh, uh, TJ Swan was this guy who would sing over um, hip hop beats. He wasn't really a rapper. And so that kind of thing didn't really exist before him to that degree. And so he ends up befriending Bismarcky and they're in a car driving to a party or something. And, and, um, Bismarcky starts doing the beatbox and, 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 and TJ Swan starts singing over him, over his beatbox and, and, uh, let's, let's partner up. And, uh, so you have the early Bismarcky records and then also a few other records like MC Shan, She Left Me Lonely have, um, TJ Swan singing the choruses, singing the hook. And that's, you see that uh, to a much larger degree, m- maybe 10 years later with uh, 
oh, Nate Dogg singing a hook on a Warren G record or Nate Dogg singing hooks on lots of people's records and then T-Pain doing the same thing 10 years after that. So he really set up, TJ Swan set a precedent where you could be this guy who's just known for singing on rap records. And then the biz as the human beatbox, he's one of the pioneers of that particular, maybe not the pioneer, second wave of that, I would say. Is that fair? Yeah, Dougie Fresh being the first. And then after that, uh, you have Buffy from um, Fat Boys. And then you have uh, a few other people. I think Greg Nice was beatboxing at the time and, and Biz Marquee. Yeah. So you have that. And, and it's, that's a weird thing because that kind of disappeared pretty quickly, too. Like by the end of the 80s, no, one had, no, no rap groups had a beatbox. Uh, in the group, it was, it, I don't, I don't really know why that kind of fell out of fashion. I love it. But a lot of these guys were able to pivot into just being straight up rappers like Bismarcky. Uh, well, he was doing both really. Yeah. And, and his, his approach was a little bit novel. He's doing some things with his throat that were more complicated and, and I sort of, you know, going back and listening to so much of this stuff, preparing for this, I kind of made me wonder, you know, if there's a whole vein of human beatbox uh, innovation that could be mined out of, of of business ideas there. But that's sort of a tangent. I want to I want to get to the thing about Biz. Two things about Biz. One, he had a massive, massive hit single and and was on you know Yo MTV Raps and and everywhere and, and took it platinum. And then he gets hit with a copyright infringement for uh, sampling Gilbert O'Sullivan and really basically covering Gilbert O'Sullivan without giving him proper songwriting credit. And it comes back to bite Biz and Cold Chillin and all of hip hop. Yeah, and I don't think that was a that was a you know malicious intent on Bismarck's part. I, the the way things worked back then was uh, a record is made and then the label is told here are the samples that need to be cleared, and then it's the label's responsibility to clear the samples. Well, that didn't end up happening um, in that case, and then the label got sued, uh, and also Warner Brothers, who was uh, um, kind of working in in uh, conjunction with um, Cold Chillin' at the time as their distributor, but also you know doing all the things labels do, promotion, publicity, et cetera. Uh, so everyone is named in the lawsuit and, and essentially not only do they have to pay a huge amount of money that, but they have to pull the records off the shelves, which, which had never, that had never happened before. Usually you'd get dinged and then you'd have to add someone to, uh, the, the publishing if you didn't, uh, if you didn't clear a sample. So that, that set such a precedent that it made labels, uh, be very, very, very cautious to make sure that they had cleared the samples before the record uh, comes out because the stakes were higher. And um, the, the funny thing about that is Warner Brothers actually hired someone whose entire job was to listen to records and figure out what are the samples in this that we need to clear because he was kind of a human encyclopedia of music. It was like a walking Shazam app. Yeah. And, and his name was, I think his name was like Sherwin Stroll or Sherwin Stahl. It's in the book. I didn't I interview him, but I interviewed someone else at Warner Brothers who said that they locked him in, in the basement of Warner Brothers Records and made him, and he had to listen to records all day and he, and he went crazy 
<laughs> Driven mad by something that's been replaced by a phone app and the internet uh, yeah. 20 years later. But the the judge in that case was also extremely punitive and clearly had no conception of hip hop as an art form. And so it, it was a pretty poor case um, to be the test case for sampling. And, and for a lot of us, that was a sort of a, a painful end of an era. And, and and a lot of people mark the end of the golden age right there with, with the Bismarcky and Gilbert O'Sullivan case. And I know I've never forgiven Gilbert O'Sullivan, who I'd never heard of before. It's one of those songs that was in the air. And I swear I never had heard that song, uh, even though it was a massive hit um, in the 70s when I was a child. But you know, it was all news to me. And then, and then suddenly hip hop records sound completely different. And I'm trying to figure out what the hell, you know? And, I, yeah. Uh, I don't think it happened. I don't think it happened all of a sudden, though. I think it was gradual. Like the samples gradually disappeared from yeah. records. Yeah. But but you figure if you if you're gonna make a a song and use ten different samples in it, you're and clear all ten samples, you're not gonna make a dime off the song. So it's like you can't like the economics don't make any sense. Like you got to make money at the, making the music that you make. So it, it really eliminates the possibilities of having you know, songs with, you know, dozens of samples in them. Yeah. Which is makes, my favorite stuff. Yeah. It makes something like the bomb squad and what PE was doing, uh, totally physically impossible. Let's hear one last song before, uh, we change topics again. This is cool to rap and DJ Polo's it's a demo, or it might've been DJ Polo and cool to rap at that point, but this is their first record. It's a demo. You rap is my name, I write rhymes and assert them inside your brain. And DJ Polo, the man up behind me, operates a turntable when I'm rocking my rhymes. So give a demo, give a demo, give a demo, give a demo. That was DJ Polo and Cool G Rap doing It's a Demo, which is a song that some people say is the first time James Brown's A Funky Drummer was sampled in hip hop. And it goes on to be one of the most sampled records of that era and on into today. Yeah, the funky drummer. That was a big one for for rap music at the time. We hear that on a lot of records. And and Cool G Rap and DJ Polo. DJ Polo and I have had a softness spot in my heart for for a long time because there was always the sort of what does DJ Polo do question. <laughs> and then yeah. in the book, it's 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 clear it wasn't a whole lot. What what did DJ Polo do? Well, DJ Polo um, is went to high school with Marley Marl, so he's he's um, significantly older than Cool G Rap, and he came from this era of the late '70s, early '80s, where a DJ would DJ, uh, a, you know, park jams, uh, and and it would be the the emphasis was less on your 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 ability as a DJ, like your skills, and more about you have the biggest sound system, you have the most records, you have the ability to get people coming to the party like that that's and so as it transitions out of that and into you know uh production and 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 djing skills and scratching skills um there there's you have guys like uh dj polo who um they kind of their creative 
input takes a backseat uh, to, I guess, a producer like Marley Marl or Cool G Rap, who was actually really instrumental in, in picking, um, picking samples. But actually, I, I think It's a Demo was... Um, was actually produced by DJ Polo. That's one of the few things he really did creatively was put that record together, even though Marley Marl engineered it. I, I could be misspeaking, but there, there are a few songs that DJ Polo actually did put together and produce. Like another one, um, I want to say Vapors, which was wow. supposed was supposed to be a Cool G Rap and DJ Polo song, but Cool G Rap didn't like it. And then Bismarcky took the beat or, or was given the beat. Um, so there are a few things, but yeah, you have a, there is a question of, um, if a record is made in the studio and then it's performed live, what is a DJ doing? And you have a power shift in sometime in the eighties between the DJ being the most important component to be, to that, to the MC being the most important component. And it's been all about the MC ever since for better or worse. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's there's certain star scratcher scratch DJs, but it, that's almost become a separate genre or subgenre of music. But Cool G Rap, I want to talk about because he was a guy who was uh, another brilliant lyrical rapper, and he was an early proponent or exponent of of what they called reality rap at the time and what we now know as gangster rap. But he didn't get the big rewards that some of the West Coast gangster rap artist got but he did get the punishments of the backlash right because um in 92 body count puts out a record called cop killer actually they put out an album that has the song cop killer on it and body count is a heavy metal band with ice t as a singer and um there's this huge warner brothers who was the parent label i think it was on sire maybe um caught a lot of flack for uh from like police unions for having a song for having the cop killer song so they pulled the song off that record and then other records almost exclusively by rap groups end up getting basically not not censored well i guess you this is a form of censorship where the label says hey we're not going to put out this record we're not going to put out this album unless you take this song off it so that was happening to a lot of groups. And one of them was Cool G Rap and DJ Polo for the third album, Live and Let Die, which was co-produced by Sir Jinx, who is Ice Cube's producer. So it sounds very similar to like an Ice Cube record, sonically. Um, and Ice Cube is even on it, uh, on one song. That gets Warner Brothers, who again, Cold Chillin' is working with at this point, they flat out refuse to release it. So Cold Chillin' puts puts out that album independently. Uh, so it still comes out, but it doesn't get the, you know, major label push that it would have otherwise. So yeah, there are a lot of cool G rap was catching bad breaks left and right. And, and the, that's sort of typical of the last era of, of cold chill. And there's a couple young artists that come along uh, master ace and the genius that I'm thinking of who go on to have, pretty noteworthy careers, the genius in particular, when he co-founds the Wu-Tang Clan. And, you know, you, you, you see this happen sometimes, like with Stack signing Richard Pryor in the 70s and never going on to profit from, from his success and their acuity and, and spotting that talent. What was it that they were not able to capitalize on the genius and Master Ace at the end? 
Um, Master Ace he puts out this album where most of the songs are very uh, they're they're political. They're uh, what we now would call conscious hip hop. And there's one like jokey, goofy song on it. And that's the song that Warner Brothers decides that's going to be our, the first single called Me and the Biz, where he's rapping with Biz Marquee, except he's not rapping with Biz Marquee. He's rapping with himself, pretending to be Biz Marquee. And the reason for that is because Biz Marquee had personal issues with Marley Marl. They didn't want to work together. The who, who Marley produced that record. And so they just kept Master Ace's scratch vocals pretending to be Bismarcky. So it's like an interesting story. It's not really representative of that album or the rest of Master Ace's work. I mean, to this day, Master Ace is he's a serious dude. He's not like a he's, he doesn't really do comedy rap very much. And um, so I think that record, uh, Me and the Biz, was, was a semi hit. Uh, and then the other singles weren't weren't really hits from that and, and at the same time master ace is not using fly tie for his management and um he's butting heads with the label um and he he just he they end up actually warner brothers tells cold chillin and this factors in with the genius as well they they tell Cold Chillin we're gonna cut these groups from the, or these these rappers from the roster uh, because they didn't sell enough records and this is like 1991 so they draw a line you know anyone who sold below this much is getting cut from the the Warner Brothers Cold Chillin roster and Master Ace's name was just below the line so. And and the genius was below the line too, I gather, because that was '91 as well, and that was and the genius only made one record for Cold Chillin, so there was kind of a reckoning. The Cold Chillin was putting out more records than ever, uh, a greater number of records, and seeing diminished uh, returns, and, and so it, it caught up to them at that point. And there were a lot of rappers who were just getting off the ground who kind of got caught up in that that shuffle. And the genius, to this day, you know, he's considered one of the greatest rappers in, in the Wu-Tang Clan. And I don't know if that first album really has too many fans. There, there are good songs on it, but it's not... Most fans of his would say that the Liquid Swords album would be his greatest moment. So he had just on a sheer creative level he had better days ahead of him you know from that point yeah it definitely has a chrysalis coming out of the chrysalis moment with the wu-tang clan and just hadn't come into focus i think when he was with cold chillin and and that first master ace record on cold chillin was so impossible to find and one of those records that's on everybody's list for a long time and nobody can find it of course now you can get it on youtube for free but uh yeah. You know, it, it's it's it was one that was sort of lost to history for for the better part of a decade, and um, you know he went on to have a noteworthy career. Never had massive popular success, but but definitely made his mark, uh, and and was more true to his persona than the novelty record. Um, but I'm glad you got that story in because the Bismarcky uh, and the video with the Bismarcky doll is also. Um, 
you know, just sort of a classic moment. And, and um, it's a classic moment from the golden age of hip hop, which Cold Chillin' was a huge part of. And the book is Going Off, the story of the Juice Crew and Cold Chillin' Records. And Ben Burles is the author. And thanks so much for coming and, and telling us about this great record label. Thanks for having me. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Come back next week when Alana Nash joins Nate to talk about Dolly Parton. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Going Off, the story of the Juice Crew and Cold Chillin' Records is published by BMG. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, LetItRollPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.